Welcome to the AJP podcast. I'm your host, Carleen McMore. Today we are talking to Vibhuti Arya. She's a pharmacist academic who works in the US. She's discussing equity in healthcare. And this podcast was done in 2021, just following Reconciliation Week. My name is Vibhuti Arya. I am, along with Carleen, the, uh, one of the global leads for the Workforce Development Goal 10 for the International Pharmaceutical Federation. And this goal is essentially centered around equity and equality in pharmacist workforce development across the globe. So thank you for joining us, Vibhuti, today to talk about equity from your extensive experience. So what I would like to start off with is there is a lot more discussion now <coughs> about equity, about accountability, about corporate and system structure as well as individual accountability. You'd be having a lot of very challenging conversations at the moment um, as you try to challenge some of the systems and individual beliefs that are in place. So I thought I'd ask you to share some of um, the work that you've been doing and some of the outcomes that you've learned. Sure. Thank you for having me on. Um, So my background essentially stems from social justice and utilizing where I sort of came from in terms of like a lot of the creative um, arts and theater and getting people to connect with difficult topics through art and conversation to be happening that's in a little bit of a more comfortable medium than people are used to in a very sort of stiff environment, if you will. And, you know, as I started my journey in pharmacy, it was really important for me to keep the core, I would say, of social justice throughout whatever I did. And at the end of the day, for me, it just fit perfectly and made sense because it was about the patient. It was about access. It was about improving um, health disparities. And I got into doing health equity work and social determinants of health before these terms were popularized, I would say, or in the mainstream conversation and before they became a topic of um, probably everyday discussion, hopefully, <laughs> in across systems. And currently, you know, through my journey as a professor and as a public health professional, um, I think that one of the things that's been really remarkable in the past two years, clearly with social justice movements across the globe, has been a very, very um, uncomfortable conversation with many folks across various um, groups, right? So students, faculty, leadership, you know, C-suite, leader, you know, people who are in charge of associations and organizations and corporate structures, for example, is a lot of this conversation surrounding what do I do about this? Right? Like, we all understand that certain things, you know, racism, structural racism, understanding different perspectives and perhaps not having a workplace that invites all of those perspectives and or even has um, a diversity of perspectives, that it's necessary, but I think people are finding it really hard to move forward. And one of the things that has come up is certainly accountability, as you mentioned. And I think that, you know, the way I would like to propose this is sort of there are two separate conversations, right? One is about an individual. What can you and I do as an individual to understand our own lived experiences, understand how we have been socialized, understand how we walk through life and make assumptions or decisions about the world and the people in it? And then there's also the systems conversation about the policies and procedures and sort of these institutions, so larger high-level kind of constructs, do they actually invite different perspectives? 
certainly they're lacking a diversity in many places. Um, but I think that what people are really having a hard time as far as I have been tapped into or heard is what do I actually do? And I think that this is, you know, it's, first of all, I guess a disclaimer would be that there's no quick, immediate, bite-sized solution, so to speak, about it. It's not a checklist. It is not something that magically can be done. And voila, we're going to have great systems that are super conducive to inviting different perspectives. I think there's a lot of work that has to be done. But in order to move forward, we have to take a few steps back and reckon with the history of our respective, not only nations, but also settings, workplaces, professions, and what has happened in the history of how that institution or profession or whatever that represents has gained so much power or clout in the society, right? And I think part of that is really difficult to do because people sort of dissociate with history so much that, well, that wasn't me, you know, I didn't individually contribute to that. So I don't see myself in that system. Well, we're all part of these systems somehow, right? And likely unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, but very likely unintentionally most of the time, we are being complicit in these systems if we just sort of are passive bystanders or just sort of move with the current and don't speak up and raise questions when we see things that are happening that are unjust or unfair. And by, by being quiet, by being passive, by not making this about all of us and not finding that we are all interconnected, I think that we do a disservice because we are not then contributing to the actual progress of the movement, right? We're not contributing to progress in the workplace. We're not contributing to progress in society. And so individually, we do have to think about what it, what assumptions do we have? In my lived experience, how have I grown up and been introduced to certain concepts? How have I been introduced to different groups of people? Do I have exposure? If I don't have exposure firsthand, what have I been told about them? Where have these messages or underlying biases that I have or assumptions, where have they come from? And certainly we have media and institutions and the way that we've been brought up, our social circles, etc., contributing to that. But it's really important for us to be aware enough to understand how those biases and assumptions are going unchallenged, how they may impact the way that we see people and, I would say, treat people, for example, whether it's through our own workplaces, whether it's our patients, whether it's, you know, even friends or larger circles. Um, what are the things that we are assuming and how are, what am I doing as an individual to challenge these assumptions within me? and how I make decisions. And I think that when individuals start to do that, and I developed this methodology called the darkroom methodology that really explores, it's akin to the sort of the photography metaphor where you know a person goes in or amateur or professional goes into the dark room and they have a process by which they develop photographs. And I think that what's important there is to understand that we have to also have an iterative process. We go back into our dark rooms and we have to ask ourselves certain questions when nobody else is looking, when nobody else is listening to us. We don't have to be nice, politically correct and all of those things. We're not afraid of being judged um, other than by ourselves. And it's really important for us to 
understand and have the intentional space and time to do that. Because that's where we start confronting and holding up the mirror and understanding what our life story has been, what that narrative has been that we have been conditioned with that then informs the way that we look at the world and the people in it. And part of that is this self-examination right at the core, um, coupled with humility, because if we don't have that component, it's really difficult for us to see things the way they are and not become defensive and want to justify and defend the way that we see see people um, <clears throat> and and this world. And so I think that challenging our own assumptions and, and understanding who we are and stepping into our own lens and our narrative is really key. When it comes to the systems, you know, all of us participate in systems. We perform and behave in systems a certain way. We understand that there are sometimes written rules and sometimes, many times, unwritten rules, right, that we continue to follow and sometimes passive, sometimes active. But all of us also have a way that we can shape those systems and those cultural norms and the mental models that actually go into creating an atmosphere that either promotes certain ways of thinking or, you know, delineates what is okay, what is not okay, what is professional, what is not professional, and why do we think so, right? Why is it that I would say X is professional and Y is not? I don't mean that in a chromosomal way, but right, just A and B or whatever. Um, per perhaps that one thing is more acceptable than the other, and we have to challenge ourselves to do that. But in those systems, we are a bunch of individuals. We're teams. So all of us are performing and behaving a certain way. And I think it's really important for us to um, critically examine these systems that include these policies, these processes, procedures, to understand if they actually, those policies and processes and procedures, actually invite different opinions, actually invite dissent, actually invite um, different perspectives, or is there something there that actually shuts it out, right? And it's, it's a matter of having representation, certainly, of different perspectives, for example, in leadership and in these systems, but it's also important for us to understand that the individuals who make up those systems, particularly leaders and people in positions of, of influence and power, is it just performative, right, the conversation about equity, or is it really something that people are saying that they're committed to? And if so, what are the actions? And if you're doing the action or committing the actions, what is the motivation? Is it to feel better or is it to actually bring about change? So I think the motivation actually matters as well. Um, it's it's if the motivation is just to feel better, you're likely surrounded by people who will also will always say, "Hey, good job! You know that was great. That was really bold." And I think it misleads you into thinking certain decisions, certain actions are great when they're really not. And so you have to remember. All of us have to remember that we many times are surrounded by people who think like us, who look like us perhaps who, in the very least, have certain proclivities that are similar to ours, right? We tend to you know, espouse some leadership qualities or think that you know, servant leadership is the great, greatest thing or whatever the case is that brings us together. There has to be a way in which we're also inviting perspective of dissent, that we're inviting perspective of just not our own lens because we all have blind spots that need to be checked. One of the ways in which 
I've done this, for example, um, you know, instead of saying, okay, does everybody agree or disagree, right? It's more about, okay, what's another perspective we haven't thought about today, right? Or what's another perspective that we may be missing? It just allows people not to be so personal with it. It doesn't, you know, you're not blamed, you're not disagreeing with people, you're just offering different perspectives. And when that's encouraged and invited, I think that that's one way in which, for example, we can create an atmosphere um, that actually promotes, you know, diversity of viewpoint, diversity of, view, of viewpoints and diversity of perspectives. Um, so, so I will, so to wrap that up, I think it's the conversation about the individuals and challenging our own assumptions and what we've been conditioned to believe and the narratives running through our heads and also how all of our individuals and our teams make up the system itself to then understand how we're also doing this on a systems level um, with our policies, procedures, and processes that are actually conducive to inviting difference of opinion. So I was going to ask a little bit about privilege because <laughs> we've heard many different definitions of privilege and actually I think one of the best ones I've heard is actually just for certain groups of individuals the absence of obstacles that other people actually experience. So it means that they're Opportunities are just a little bit easier to obtain or it means they're just a little bit less exhausted at the end of the day because they don't have as many barriers. So I guess I'd ask you what your thoughts and experiences were um, with regards to privilege. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think it's invisible and visible privilege. So part of you know, what I emphasize is that privilege is not just what we see and what we have and what we experience. It's also the things we don't see it's the things we don't get to experience and and like you said it's the absence of those obstacles and i think that the the curse perhaps of this is that when you know what we don't see and experience sort of becomes invisible to us right and so when we are brought forth with this conversation about privilege or or lack thereof for example it's hard for people with privilege to sometimes understand it acknowledge it and and consequently you know act on it um and so i think that when you do see it that way as a lack of obstacle it is really important to understand that all of us right and and it's not a binary thing this is one of the things that i really emphasize in a lot of the in the work that i do is that we have to move our lenses from the binary to the complex right we have to embrace the complexity of all of these conversations and situations because it's not just race privilege, right? It's not just white privilege. It's not just class privilege. Oftentimes, it's the intersection of so many different variables and factors, you know, as a, a you know, gender and sexual orientation. And it's, it's complicated. And I think a lot of times, all people want to do is tie a nice little bow around it and simplify it and say, okay, this is all you need to know, you know, class dismissed. And in reality, it's just very complex. And so, yeah, I agree with that definition of privilege. I would, I would also just add that, you know, it's, it's part of it is also the privilege to walk away from these conversations. A lot of what we're talking about may not impact some of us that the way it impacts others. And so I think it's important for us to realize that, again, we are all interdependent, interconnected, and there's only so many ways in which you can avoid. There's only so many um so much longer that you can say, ah, oh, well, that doesn't impact me, so I don't have to care about it. Um, but I think that hopefully we're moving into a shared reality where 
we do realize that it's all connected, that we do realize that what impacts one eventually has impact on another. And it's important for us to then become active participants in that privilege, right? So you, you shouldn't, it's not just something that you can just stand by and say, well, I either have it, I don't, or whatever, and that's where the conversation ends. But it's more about what do I have, right? Because we all have, again, the intersection of all these variabilities, um, or excuse me, the variables, but how do we then use our platform, our privilege to further the conversation? Because I think that there's a responsibility that we have where whatever is not my own issue, it's not just as simple as, well, not my issue, so I'm done, but it's more about, well, I know it's impacting somebody, but in this conversation about gender, for example, as a heterosexual cis individual, my it is my responsibility and my shared responsibility to then amplify the voices of those who do not identify as a cis individual, as a uh, person who is heterosexual. So it's not just their issue to bring up all the time and defend, it's also mine. And it's important that we realize that. It's important that we understand that the work of equity is not just of the marginalized voices and it's also not enough for us to just center the marginalized voices bring them to the center and then say okay that's it my work is done it's actually about amplifying it's actually about creating environments and again systems that are that are listening actively and saying okay i rolled up my sleeves what can i do to help right and that's the piece where I think that we ought to push everybody to say, let's actually use our privilege in an active way, in an intentional way, in a deliberate manner to create the time and space that is needed to further these conversations. Not just say, I'm all about the cause, yay, I'm so great, and then you close the book and you go away. It's actually about diving deeper and feeling the emotions and the discomfort that comes with all of this, right? When you go to the gym or you go work out or you do yoga or whatever, you awaken muscles inside of you. There's going to be some pain before, you know, you, you see some some great results that might stretch you further and push you further into into being stronger. And I think that that discomfort is where we ought to take our privilege and say, let's actually push ourselves further to be stronger together. So this is very topical for Australia at the moment because um, last week was National Reconciliation Week. So a little bit of background on Did you hear? Do you know anything about it? No. Okay. So basically it's... um. So I, there's some parallels with America. So basically it's um, National Reconciliation Week for people of Aboriginal um, heritage. So basically it's calling on people not just to have a week where they try to reconcile with the history that has happened with the Aboriginal people and Australia and also the judgments and the inequity that exists for Aboriginal people. Um, but not just to have a week where you acknowledge it and say, well, we feel bad about it, but to actually take action to be inclusive and to provide equity. And also, so I actually heard an interview with um, an Aboriginal lady who was actually talking about the fact that it's very interesting being an Aboriginal in Australia and an Aboriginal female in Australia, because they're two um, 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 aspects to it as well as the fact that she was saying that a lot of people contact her to ask her about her perspective on the Aboriginal history and the stolen generation. And she's like, it's not, 
it's not my job and it's emotionally exhausting for her to consistently try to change it and she's like when is it your responsibility to do some research about it and understand it better um but she was also talking about the fact that we need to take real action because it's not just a week of acknowledgement it's how do we carry this through to create opportunities and equity for Aboriginal people? So that was literally last week. So yeah. yeah, I thought I'd just share a little bit of what my understanding was from last week and just hear a little bit about your perspective on some of those views. Yeah, and I guess I have her. I, I thought I was unfamiliar. I'm, I'm a bit familiar with it, but I think that what's what strikes me about that is is the emotional exhaustion, right? And, and I think that there... <laughs> dare I say, an arrogance to, you know, people being like, okay, well, you, Carlene, educate me on what you're, you know, what I need to know about your experience. And it's like, well, I don't speak for every person that looks like me or speaks like, you know, and I think that there's a real um, sense of, uh, I've, I've coached many people on how to actually have that conversation and politely, or not even really politely, that's not the right word for it, but very firmly create boundaries that say, that's not my responsibility and that is not my responsibility to educate you you know google has been around for a while this is not a plug for google but whatever search engine you want to use you can you know there are lots of readings and lots of books that are not necessarily new i would say and there's a lot of um exhaustion just sort of people i know have asked me like compile a list you know um could you just let me know what i'm supposed to be reading right now and i'm like you can use your search engine and that can let you know what you should be reading. You can literally put the question in, what should I be reading about, you know, learning about Aboriginal um, plight? Or it's so important to recognize that. It's so important to recognize, one, it is our individual, again, responsibility to understand where these narratives in our head came from. So where, before you go to anybody, um, particularly a person of color, particularly an Aboriginal person, you don't say teach me everything it's not like a downloaded disk drive right that you just plug in your usb or whatever i don't know what cloud or whatever um by the time somebody listens to this podcast i'm sure technology will be even more revamped and you know it's not their responsibility to, to teach you everything you're supposed to know and there is emotional exhaustion and you do as a as a person on the other side have to sort of create that boundary and say you know thank you for reaching out but this is not that's not my responsibility right now and I think that there's a real exhaustion also that comes with, and frankly, anger, right? Anger, despair, and a lot of frustration that comes with talk, but no action. I mean, there's a reason we say talk is cheap, right? It's not, you can't just stop there. While I have compassion to hold people's hands and take them down a journey that they don't have a frame of reference for, let's be frank, right? They're, they they don't know what to do with that guilt and fragility. While I can, um, I'm happy to hold the space to compassionately hold their hand and kind of provide that container or space to do that. It is really important for me to also convey that they need to speed up that process a little bit because while they have the luxury and the privilege of having that conversation of, you know, taking time to reflect and cry and feel whatever they're feeling, maybe for the first time, really, that they're reckoning with the history and all the stuff that has happened and the injustices. And for even a fraction of a second, the guilt that comes with, oh my gosh, maybe I actually am partly responsible or I'm complicit in this system. 
I think that it's important to also recognize that while that luxury is being had, there are people who are, who are dying and there are people whose fates are being determined. So I will say as an individual, yes, I have less compassion and, you know, just as an individual, less sort of space for celebrating that because I'm like, hurry up. We need you to hurry up because there are people, you can use your privilege for good because there are people who are dying as you are sitting here in the luxury of processing things and, and thinking through things. At the same time, you know, there are days like, you know, where I, I do have a lot more compassion for that and say, okay, well, let's work through this. But I think that it's really important to, again, like I said, in order to move forward, you have to take a couple of steps back. So yes, the reckoning and the history and, and the importance of understanding and sort of catching up to speed, if you will, is really important. It is also important to take responsibility and understand that systems of privilege where while you as an individual may not have participated in that the generations and your lineage gained some unearned privilege and favors from the system that have put you ahead than other families and other groups and it's important to recognize that that while there's generational wealth being built there was an entire, you know, other sector that didn't have any generational wealth because they literally couldn't have access to that. And so it's really important to not only acknowledge and reckon with that, but also then take responsibility to educate, read, but then think into action of how do you move into actually operationalizing this, right? How do you, do you take a vow individually to speak up every time you see situations happening um, and, and publicly at that, right? Not just calling your friend after and saying, I'm so sorry you had to go through that, but actually while the situation's happening in a timely manner, speaking up and being an agent of change there and, and being progressive in a way that, that brings attention to the matter, but also brings an urgency to the matter that compels others to move into action, that compels others to recognize that these are people, that there's trauma being caused, trauma being perpetuated, and that there is healing that can come. And it's not, you know, I'm also a yoga teacher, so I full, fully believe in that we have mechanisms and, and we can do the internal work where we can heal um, our trauma as well, but it shouldn't be just the work of the people who are um, feeling trauma. I think that's where, again, the question of privilege comes in, where you can say, okay, well, what are you doing with that privilege? to move the conversation, to further the action, to, to again, bring about the urgency and, and compel these systems to say, that's nice that we can recognize and, oops, sorry, that was really horrible, um, but what are we going to do about it, right? Look at the data, where the disparity is, what are we going to do about it? How can we set up better systems that can actually serve people who need more resources just because of the history and because they've been robbed of them, frankly, for so many years. How do we bring about change that can um, perhaps reverse engineer some of the stereotypical biases that we perpetuate through the media, for example? You know, who's represented in these conversations? Who are, who are the authors whose books we're reading in school that our children are being educated with? How are they being educated about it? And what are the stories that go untold that we're not bringing to the forefront? And I think all of those are examples of ways in which we can start bringing awareness in a very real way that actually 
would compel progressive change that actually would compel all of us to say hmm not okay we definitely need to to see how we can um, pave way you know together and 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 pave way for healing so it's not just you know i think sometimes people talk hear me talk and they say oh v you know it's just so grim and it's so you know trauma centered and and i'm like well yeah well it yes it stinks but that's what it is and so in order to move into healing, you need to recognize and not dismiss the trauma and not trivialize it. So I think it is really important to have, um, again, you know, a week is great, but what are we doing to bring about sustainable change, right? What are the things that can be celebrated during that week that can actually cause, again, urgency in action and, and compel into change for systems that can actually bring about an equitable future? Okay. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask you a little bit about COVID because obviously that has brought to light some more inequities. There's been higher death rates in certain groups of people, healthcare, access to healthcare. So I thought I'd ask you about what your views are on the impact of COVID on equity. Great. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, working in emergency preparedness, one of the things that we always say is that in an emergency situation, everything that already exists is just magnified, right? It's really important to understand that these are not new issues, that these are these don't just pop up as new incidents and events and anomalies, if you will, um, but that it's more about the systems and environments that already exist that are conducive to inequity but that really shine through in any emergency situation that really shine through and get magnified in any emergency situation so we've seen an emergence of disparities when it comes to for example testing and you know uh understanding even public health messaging right so we as i'm in new york in in the u.s and i think that one of the things that we've seen is you know, when it comes to testing, when it comes to COVID and how it's impacted public health messaging, even, you know, hand washing as simple as, you know, hand washing, like having access to clean water, right? We can't take that for granted. Um, people living in multi-generational households, right? Being asked to socially distance. Well, that's going to be a difficult thing to do. And so it's important for us to understand and have situational awareness of the communities that we serve and what, again, the perspectives of a lot of the people who are on the decision-making end of these policies and laws and public health messaging, you know, many of us don't live in the neighborhoods where the people who are impacted most by inequities are actually living. Many of us don't have that lens. And maybe we did once. Maybe we grew up in that and maybe we grew out of that into class privilege. But a lot of us need to remember that we have to be in touch with the communities that we serve and engaging those communities in very real conversations and not assuming things is really important. And I think COVID has also taught us that, that we can't be assuming things about people. Um, and I think even, you know, what was a great shared experience, for example, in, in this pandemic was the fact that everybody's reality got disrupted, right? No matter where you were, whether you have privilege, where, you know, how much privilege you have, what kind of privilege you have. We got one, you know, there's an intersection and a matrix of it all. But wherever you were, your life got disrupted in some sort of way. 
Now, some of us have resources to quickly act on those disruptions and be able to roll with it. Some of us don't have the resources to adapt to them. Some of us still had to go and work. Some of us couldn't work from home. Some of us live with children and had to, you know, start being the childcare or um, even even if you had daycare, even if you had childcare, it, it was tricky because anytime they sneeze, they had to be home. So I think that everybody's normal, quote unquote, got disrupted in some way, shape or form. I'm hopeful that because of that experience, we all as a as a community, as a global community, have gained at least an ounce more of empathy um, for others because we all have shared in this experience somehow together. You know, even if you're super wealthy, even if you whatever it is, whatever privilege you have or don't have, everyone's normal got disrupted. I think what was unique about this and why there's so many conversations now about um, social justice and equity, for example, is because many of us who had the luxury, and I, I say that very specifically, to have a secure home, to have steady shelter, steady food supply, and no disruption in our basic needs, I would say, who have the security we were allowed all of a sudden the luxury to sit back and think about things that were happening in our world and digest them in a very different way than if we just would have gone to work, right? And it's business as usual. So I think that um, while it has also highlighted and magnified many inequities, I think it's made the case very clear. You, can, you must be living under a rock if you haven't seen and realize that these things exist, that the inequities exist across various, various um, factors. But I think it also gave us an opportunity to, again, say, okay, well, what can I actually do about it, right? And hopefully, like I said, gave us an ounce more empathy into understanding other people's realities. Like there are countries that experience the crisis perhaps not for a viral right not maybe not a virus but wars or you know you leave your house or people your kid leaves to go to school you don't know if they'll come back alive right there are societies and communities across the globe that experience that sense of heightened stress and heightened anxiety day in and day out while a lot of the rest of the world is fine and going about their daily lives so i think that it's important for us to recognize that again in reckoning, right? Like what's happening, but also how do we come together as a global community? The vaccine, right, was a great example um, in understanding how quickly science can, you know, if people put their heads together and people put governments and resources together, how quickly we can actually solve problems. But we came together, right, as a global community. And there's, you know, lots of layers to scrutinize there, but I do think that it's... Um, while it has been a challenging year or over a year now for many, I think it's also highlighted again for the privileged people who don't see the rest of the disruption in the world. I hope it allowed a lens into what that means for other people. So I'm hopeful, but cautiously optimistic at that. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question about something that <clears throat> maybe doesn't get thought about so much the impact of 
racism or inequity on an individual. So we're talking about the impact of microaggressions, racism, we're talking about the impact on anxiety levels. Because um, I guess we always talk about work and promotions and leadership and opportunities, but also just on a biochemical, physiological level to actually experience these on a daily basis. Yeah. What kind of impact does it have on an individual? Yeah, and now we even have, we've named a, you know, concept or a hypothesis of weathering, right, of the, this this phenomenon that um, people who are experiencing race-related stress actually have a baseline, heightened baseline level of anxiety and predisposes them to several diseases, right, as we all know that stress does. So there is, you know, I'm glad that there is now more of awareness um, about weathering, this concept of weathering or um, stress that is race related that certainly does manifest psychosomatically and in the body and kind of predisposes people again to this heightened sense of um, stress and the stress hormones and, and predisposition to disease. I think that there's also a really, um, uh, I wonder if there's going to be a little bit more pain before the healing comes as people are reckoning with what's happening. I think that there's a lot of people, frankly, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with white folks who are like, I care, but I don't know what to do. This is also like the first time I'm ever being talked about about this, right? As as a phenomenon, this is the first time I would say in global history that we've called out white privilege in such an explicit way um, across the world that there's not a frame of reference for doing anything about it and people are just like what do I do what do I do how do I get over this and it's like well there's going to be a lot of deep work involved so I think as an individual level on both sides there's a lot of work to be done and I think that there's also a lot of confusion and um, I would say you know guilt on both sides as well like there's a lot lot of people who are people of color um, who have class privilege, for example, and are just like, ugh, but the way I get treated at work, I can see this, right? As much as I can try to deny it or I can try to um, dismiss it or just kind of keep forging ahead because that's what survival requires me to do, there's a lot of coming to processing about these emotions that people have been going through. And I think that there's, again, it's it's a lot of trauma that people have to just face and you know, I am grateful for my yoga training and, and being process, and being uh, trained in very specifically uh, understanding processing trauma, actually. And, you know, we, we studied a lot about positive psychology and the world of psychotherapy and how you facilitate those discussions and conversations and how it sits in your body, for example, and how you help people um, or serve people moving their trauma through their bodies and there's a lot of mechanisms and tools for healing there. But I think that it goes quite, again, dismissed. There's a luxury and a privilege to being able to take care of yourself that I hope that we've all, you know, for those of us who have the privilege and the time and space to do that, have recognized how important it is. But there's also a lot of guilt that our communities are feeling about having that privilege because there's a lot of people in our communities who don't have that privilege to process their trauma. So I think that there's just a, like a lot of tumultuous um, emotional processing happening. And there is a very real concept, again, um, what we uh, sometimes name as weathering, that it's also almost like an erosion, right? It like weathers, it wears you down. It's like wear and tear on your body, um, you know, allostatic load, the whole thing, and, and understanding how 
race-related stress and dealing with um, oppressive stress, right? It's not, it's like being a woman and, you know, like you mentioned with that woman who's an Aboriginal woman, that's like a synergy. It's not just a linear uh, relationship of like, now I have two things that are, you know, that I have to go through. It's actually very, very synergistic and it's really important to recognize that and it's really important to, again, have the space and time to process all of that. But not a lot of us have the luxury to do that. And I think that's a piece that's really not talked about because there's lots of emotions behind it. And um, so it's, it's really important, again, to have those very difficult conversations, to be in that space of discomfort where you have to face a lot of these things and, you know, then have to figure out once you process all your emotions around it, what are you actually going to do moving forward? How do you heal through this? How do you adopt and integrate coping mechanisms and practices for self-care as you move through life? So I've heard um, suggestions like if we had resumes that a company received and everybody's names were taken off it and you were just looking at the credentials of an individual, biases have less opportunity to rear their heads. Would that be a solution? More women coming forward and asking for pay rises or challenging inequities in gender um, pay changes or variabilities but little practical things that people can do because even myself I've had um, wage discussions um, uh, even this year where you've had to be uncomfortable and challenge the system and, and ask for something and I would say that it puts the onus on the individual as well to try to move forward and try to create a way for yourself and try to create progress. I mean, it'd be great to say that we can, you know, we're making progress for the individual and hopefully um, creating opportunities for others. So it's a twofold um, benefit and it is a lot of responsibility. But we also need to have those uncomfortable conversations and be willing to put ourselves in the position to Absolutely. make progress. And I think that that's where the collective comes in. I've, I've talked about this probably ad nauseum for some years, but I'm all about the collective and ensuring that, you know, when you study social movements and you study um, sort of what phenomenon happens when like things actually move in a progressive direction or things actually change, part of it is also understanding that it's not an individual fight or an individual cause or an individual thing. It's a collective. And so... Um, I think that you, in order for any social change to happen, you're going to need that collective and you're going to need accountability. And when the collective comes together, it demands accountability, which then leads to some sort of change. I think it's really important that we don't leave it up to the individuals to go up and ask for these things, because a lot of individuals don't even know they can do that. A lot of ind individuals don't even know about the process and frankly might feel like they're just too busy. There's a, it's a lot of effort to go up against anything and, and to even request for change, even ask, like, why is something a certain way? It is a lot because you're made to feel ashamed. You're made to feel like you're 
causing trouble or you're being difficult and not a team player. There's a lot of adjectives that are negatively associated or negative adjectives that are associated with a lot of um, dissent, I will say. And while I may celebrate that word, I don't think a lot of other people do. And I think that it's really important to find your allies. For example, you know, this is why a lot of times, like, you know, when we do gender equity work, people say, well, don't offend the men. It's like, we're not offending men. It's not a seesaw effect, right? It's not like if one voice is raised, the other one somehow diminishes or goes down. It's actually fine. It's changing that narrative and reframing that conversation to say, all of us can have great things. All of us can have success. All of us can participate in this. I think that it's really important to understand who those allies are, for example, like who are the people who can be part of the collective, identifying individuals who are not afraid to speak up. And I think that there is a little bit of responsibility there. Um, some think it's very brave and courageous. Um, I you know, think it's, it's your responsibility if you're part of that privilege to say, hey, I'm going to I'm going to stand up for this cause. Yes, perhaps I may lose something or the perception is that I have something to lose. And I just think that people just need to still do it because it's not about, you know, other other people's wins are also your wins. And I know that traditionally, perhaps we don't see it that way. But, you know, it's really important for us to understand that, that when when we win again, we're interconnected, we depend on each other and we connect connect with each other and it's really important for us to understand that and it's important for us to be active participants in that so I, I do think that while there are these mechanisms of you know removing the name some some even remove institutions because you might be biased against some institutions versus others um, while that's great I think that again you know challenging um, what those assumptions are, challenging what the rubric of assessment is, challenging, you know, what are the qualities that we're actually looking for? Rarely does anybody say it's their grade point average when they were in college, right? Rarely does anybody say it's you have to have graduated from a certain kind of uni, right? Mostly it's people characteristics and all of those kinds of things that we don't necessarily tend to assess in the same in the same light and so those are all steps that we can take but I think part of it is a larger conversation about how are we how are the people who are actually in positions of power and privilege and influence um, joining in the fight right like how are they actually joining in the cause to say yeah I'm also willing to speak up because it's again it's not the responsibility only of people um, it's not only the responsibility of women to ask for you know higher wages it's men coming to the table and saying, hey, this is not okay. I want to be supportive of my colleagues and I want to be supportive of the workforce. You know, our wives, our partners, our mothers, our sisters. I mean, this is all impacting us. And so it's ludicrous to think that it's only one gender's, um, you know, or, or one person's sort of cause or issue or problem. So I, I don't, I think it's really important to identify that collective and be able to um, figure out how to strategize in a way in a workplace to to think about that um, so it's really important to have that collective that then often leads to some sort of accountability that then brings about some social change so I would ask if there's any topics you think we haven't discussed or brought up because I think I've asked the majority <laughs> is there anything else you would like to share <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I think if just to emphasize that there's there's a topic of the individual, 
how are we all challenging our own assumptions and the narratives in our own heads? Because ultimately those impact our decision-making as well. There's a question about the systems, right? About the policies and procedures and processes that we, um, that, that are, that pave the way for individuals to perform in a system. I think that those are interrelated, but there are two conversations to have at least. And then I think it's also really understanding how, no matter what you're feeling about the privilege you may have as an individual, how are we all using our privilege, not as passive participants or bystanders, bystanders, but really as active participants in supporting or leading, right? There's Oscars for both. There's Academy Awards for both. So you don't always have to be the one leading, but there's, there's a lot to be said about a supporting role. And I think it's really important for us to, to figure out ways in which we can move away from the performance, the performative nature of it all, and really move into urgency and compelling action that allows us, some of us may want to lead those and some of us may want to support. But what are we doing today as individuals and as part of organizations and systems that we are all part of somehow to actually further the conversation, to, to, to be willing to confront our own truths and then change that into or move that into action that can then help us become active participants in supporting and or leading some of this work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please send an email to ajppodcast at appco.com.au or follow us on Twitter at AJP Podcast.